following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series during the season of Lent, and what we're doing is looking at some of the images in the New Testament particularly that describe the death of Jesus, images and metaphors that are used to explain the significance of the atonement, of the death of Jesus, and how that has reconnected us with God. Last week, we looked at the image of the slave market, those of you who are here might remember, and around the, the language of ransom and redemption. Jesus said, the Son of Man has come to give His life as a ransom for many. So we looked at how God has delivered us from slavery to sin, brought us into the freedom of new life in Christ, and He's done this all at great expense, at great cost, at the cost of the precious blood of His own Son. That is all wrapped up in the image of redemption, which has to do with the slave market. Now, this morning, I want to look at a different image, one that's related to the slave market, has some connections to it, but moves in a different direction and sheds some different light on the atonement. And it's the image drawn from the battlefield. Often in the New Testament, uh, the writers use the language of battle to describe Jesus' death, the language of warfare, of victory, of defeat, of kingdoms established and kingdoms demolished in order to explain what happened on the cross, what Jesus was doing and what God the Father was doing. So, let me start with this question. It's a bit of an unusual question, but just to get you thinking uh, from this angle, it's, it's quite a dark question actually, but it's this. What was Satan doing at the cross? Just think about that for a minute. Satan, the arch rival, arch enemy of God, the one who opposes the plans and purposes of God. What was he doing during the passion and the crucifixion of Jesus? If you've seen The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson's interpretation of all this you see. In that movie, Satan appears several times, doesn't he? Satan is this shadowy figure, actually played by a woman, interestingly, but uh, appears in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then a couple of times during uh, the trial of Jesus, during his, I think in particular, his, his whipping and the mocking of the crowd, you see there's these crowd shots and you see Satan just passing in the background just sort of drifting along behind the crowd, the smug look on his face, and you get the impression that he's the puppet master. He's giving his consent to all of this. He's overseeing it, sort of presiding over this and enjoying the suffering. Uh, Mel Gibson talked in an interview about how he introduced Satan at the points of Jesus' greatest agony. And so in the middle of his, uh, of his flogging, you see Satan um, presented there, uh, approving in a smug kind of way everything that's happening. And I think that's not a bad presentation of Satan's role in the whole deal, that in some ways he was sort of orchestrating these events and driving them forward and seeking to crush and destroy Jesus. Of course, at a, at a higher level, God was in control, right? So God ordained the death of Jesus to happen. This was certainly part of his plan and part of the whole redemptive story. But on the ground level, in terms of the flow of the action, Satan is certainly pushing things forward. He's driving events, and you see it in a couple of key texts. Flick over for a second to John chapter 13. Uh, This is the account of the final supper that Jesus has with his disciples. The night before he dies, he's uh, having this Passover meal with his disciples. Now, John doesn't actually record it, but he gives at this meal, he, he institutes the Last Supper, so he gives the bread and the wine and talks about this representing his body and his blood. Uh, And then in the context of that meal, Jesus announces to his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. 
And they all look flummoxed and talk among themselves. Who's this going to be, Jesus? It's not me, it's not me, it's not me. And Jesus says in verse 26, John 13, Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Now, it doesn't say a demon entered into him. It doesn't say an unclean spirit. Jesus has been dealing with demons all the way through his ministry. But now, at this strategic point, the night before his crucifixion, Satan himself, if you can get your mind around this, Satan himself somehow enters the body of Judas and becomes the driver of the action. Through Judas, he puts in motion this whole series of events that will lead to Jesus being handed over to the Jewish authorities, handed over to the Roman authorities, and then executed on a cross. Satan is the mastermind, and he is the one that's just driving this whole plan forward. Now, add to that Luke 23, where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to to Peter, Simon Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you like wheat. Not just Peter, all of the disciples. Satan has sought permission from God to test, to tempt, to bring down, to corrupt, to try and destroy the faith of the disciples, lead them away from God. And he pretty much succeeds. It leads, in Peter's case, to him denying Jesus. It leads, in the rest of the disciples' case, to most of them abandoning Jesus. By the time you get to the cross, hardly any of Jesus' disciples are with him. And so Satan, again, is trying to scatter the followers of Jesus as he puts this plan into effect. Even though Satan is not specifically mentioned in the crucifixion scene, it's pretty clear from the biblical text that he is seeking to do all he can to crush the Son of God. And before you see the cross as something that God did for you, I want to encourage you to see it as something that Satan did to Jesus. Okay? Before we see ourselves as the beneficiaries of the cross, we need to see it as something that Satan did to Jesus on the cross because Satan knew that Jesus was God's appointed representative. You think back to Jesus' baptism. As soon as Jesus gets baptized, Spirit comes down, God appoints him, announces, this is my only son. What's the very next thing that happens? Satan leads him into the wilderness. It's as if Satan says, right, if he's the one, Here it comes. And he he fires everything he's got at Jesus, tempts him in the desert, and then Jesus comes back and starts announcing the kingdom of God. Throughout his ministry, Jesus is casting out demons. He's taking Satan's territory away. The kingdom is being pushed forward. Satan's kingdom is being pushed back. And all of this culminates on the cross. So the cross, from this perspective, is Satan's last great effort to bring down and tear down the kingdom of God, to thwart the redemptive plan of God. Satan knows this is going to be God's finest moment. This is going to be God's greatest effort to restore humanity and creation, to bring salvation to the world, to establish his kingdom. And Satan is going to do everything he can to stop it. He marshals the full force of his army. He marshals all the political power that he has, the power of Rome, and puts Jesus on trial, sentencing him to execution. He marshals all of the human and religious forces he can and the power of the Judaic leaders at the time, and he puts Jesus on trial. It's like he's just gathering everything he's got. He's getting every single weapon together, and he's firing it at Jesus. This is his last attempt to stop the great redemptive story moving forward. That's what the cross is. Satan channels everything at Jesus, hurls everything everything at him 
And by the time you get to the end of Friday, it looks like he's won. Jesus dies. He gives up his spirit, gives up the ghost. He died. His body is put in a tomb. His disciples, the last of them that even remain, go home defeated and discouraged. And it really seems like this has all come to nothing. Satan seems to have won. The Messiah is crucified. You've got a crucified Messiah. What good is that? And then, Easter morning, Easter Sunday morning, 36 hours later, God the Father raises Jesus from the dead by the Spirit. Jesus is vindicated. The grave can't hold him down. Death can't hold him down. Hades can't hold him down. Satan can't keep Jesus in his clutches. Jesus is raised victorious from the dead, defeats evil, defeats death, defeats the grave, snatches the keys to death and Hades off Satan and triumphs victoriously over the grave and is exalted as Lord of all. All authority in heaven and earth given to him. Jesus emerges as the victor. Now, given that the resurrection has happened, you look back at the cross and it looks different now, doesn't it? If you just stick with Friday and the events of the Friday, it looks like absolute defeat. It looks like Satan's won. But from the perspective of the resurrection, you look back at the cross and you realize this was not defeat at all. And here's the beautiful irony of the cross. The very act in which Satan sought to conquer the Son of God, Satan was conquered by him. In the very act, the very same act, in which Satan sought to bring Jesus down, Satan was brought down by Jesus. It's like Satan marshals all the full force of evil and channels it at Jesus. And Jesus consumes it and absorbs it And extinguishes it within his own being. Satan takes the full fury of evil, channels it into the body of Jesus. But as evil is centered on the person of Jesus and targeted at him, it finds that it cannot stand against the overwhelming force of God's love. And it is transformed into life, victory, new creation, and love that pours forth from the cross to cover the world. Satan thought this was going to be the downfall of Jesus, but in that very same act, evil is extinguished and Satan is defeated. Now, if that seems a little bit abstract, let me try and earth this for you with, a, uh, with an illustration, with an analogy. Next door to the hub, next door to the church office, there's a kickboxing school, kickboxing club. I walk past it or drive past it most days on my way to work, and I look in there, and there's people punching bags and punching each other and kicking each other, and uh, they occasionally give me a glance that says, I'm going to take you down, and so I walk much faster. And anyway, they, they do a whole lot of things there. One of the things they do in this uh, club is jujitsu. Now, I don't know a lot about jiu-jitsu, but it seems that the basic philosophy of jiu-jitsu is that when your opponent attacks you, you don't respond with an equal and opposite force. Instead, you absorb your opponent's attack and transform it, transform the force of their attack into a counterattack. Now, loosely, very loosely, Please don't go home and say, Jesus was a jiu-jitsu master. That's what he did on the cross. That's, that's not the point. But, but very, very loosely, that is, I think, a way of thinking about how Jesus overcame Satan on the cross. He didn't simply respond with equal and opposite force. Could have done, could have called down the armies of heaven. 
to destroy Satan right there. He didn't. What did Jesus do? As Satan attacked and channeled the full force of evil at Jesus, Christ absorbed it. He consumed it within his own being and somehow redirected the force of Satan's attack into a counterattack. It didn't look like that, but it was ba- that's basically what he did. He rechanneled Satan's attack into this counterattack characterized by love, characterized by the sacrifice of Jesus. So he absorbs all that Satan throws at him. It's like uh, another analogy would be, uh, think of Jesus like a lightning conductor. These deadly bolts coming at him, and he earths them in his own being. He earths these bolts and anchors them and, 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 and earths them, spreads them in the ground so that they are not deadly to other people. Jesus absorbs the full force of evil, transforms it into a counterattack which is characterized by the, the divine love of God. And that's what goes forth from the cross. This is how evil is conquered. So Satan thought this was going to be his opportunity at victory. Instead, Satan is defeated, evil is consumed, and as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. And that swallowing is actually quite a good analogy. Death is swallowed up in the body and being of Jesus Christ. It's consumed in victory. Uh, Another analogy, Jesus uh, took the sting of evil, but in the very process of being stung, evil loses its sting and therefore becomes impotent and loses its power because Jesus absorbed the sting for us. All these analogies, all these illustrations are different ways of presenting the same basic reality that Satan channels all of his firepower at the Son of God. Jesus transforms it into victory, redirects it as love, and emerges victorious from the grave on Easter Sunday. This is summed up very succinctly by Paul in Colossians 2, which explains, I think in the best terms in Scripture, the result of this victory that Jesus won. First, uh, sorry, Colossians 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus triumphs over the powers and authorities. Now, what are these powers and authorities? Often we think of them, uh, if we think of them at all, as kind of spiritual, ethereal forces, demonic forces, uh, spiritual forces that exist out there somewhere this other realm, heavenly realm, very disconnected from the realities of our earthly life. But I would argue these powers and authorities Paul is talking about here, and he talks about them in Ephesians as well, are very earthly forces, very operative within our world. They're not necessarily flesh and blood. You can't necessarily point to one person, but they are very practical realities. These forces, these powers represent any power that stands against the reign of God. Any power that stands against the victory of God. Any power that contests and pushes back against the victory and the reign of Jesus. And these powers are all around us. Listen to the words of uh, G.B. Caird, theologian who describes this reality. He says, They, the powers, stand, as their names imply, for the political, social, economic, and religious structures of power of the old world order which Paul believed to be obsolescent. When, therefore, he claims that on the cross Christ has disarmed the powers and triumphed over them, he is talking about earthly realities, about the impact of the crucifixion on the corporate life of men and nations. Excuse the the gender-exclusive language there, but you know what he's saying. This is earthly stuff. This is reality. These powers are at work. These powers of darkness, powers of evil, they're at work in our hearts. They're at work in our lives because you know there's that selfish streak that runs through your life that contests the reign of God in your life. 
that contests his character work in your life and the reign of the Spirit. Those powers run right through every single human heart. But they extend out from that, don't they? They go, they go broader than individual human lives. These powers are operative in our world. They could represent political powers, like political systems of injustice, like racism. Think of apartheid, South Africa. Think of pre-civil rights U.S. Political structures of power that promote injustice, that raise some up and not others, that lead to, either intentionally or unintentionally, inequalities between people. These are the powers. Walter Wink calls them domination systems. They subjugate the self. They subjugate people. They push some down and they raise other people up. They contest the reign of God. Think of economic or financial powers. The thing is, human beings form themselves into institutions. They form themselves into organizations. And then these organizations and institutions behave in a way that somehow transcends any one individual. We saw it with the global financial crisis. The way in which certain corporates and financial institutions behaved in a way that was so utterly selfish and, and self-absorbed and self-promoting. And you can't necessarily point to any one person and say, it's that person's fault. You, it, it seem, it's a power that's very hard to put your finger on, and it seems to inhabit these social systems and structures that, that characterize our world. Sin seeps its way into the structures and the systems in which we live and embeds itself within them. These are the powers that Paul's talking about. Think of social powers like consumerism, how our social identity is so tied to what we have, to our lifestyle level, to the amount of wealth we have. This is a, this is a demonstration of the powers, uh, even corporate powers. I used to work in an organization, not sure, another corporate organization, uh, that had a really unhealthy corporate culture. It was promoted largely by one person, and it led to really low staff morale. It led to kind of bullying tactics. No one really gave their best. No one had much open dialogue because there was this very coercive kind of bullying attitude, and it led to a toxic corporate culture. I would suggest that's an example of the powers, the way that sin is not only personal, it's social. It's not just individual, it's corporate, and it works its way into the organizations we work for, into the social systems that we're a part of, into the structures of society. Structural sin, social sin, is as much a reality as individual and personal sin. It begins in the human heart, but as human beings coagulate together into communities, institutions, and organization, sin follows them and finds its way into the very fabric of our culture and our society. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that the powers and authorities, these earthly political, social, religious powers, have been, what? Disarmed on the cross. Now that doesn't mean they don't work. That doesn't mean they're not operative. They clearly are. We see them. We feel them. We live within them. These powers are all around us. But Paul's saying these powers no longer control the, the direction of human history and where God is taking this world. These powers no longer have the final word. These powers no longer, and the one who controls the powers, Satan, no longer sits on the throne of the universe. Not that he ever did, but he has no authority, no control. These powers are defeated enemies. They'll still lash out. They'll still try and take as many people down as they can, but they are defeated enemies. They have been disarmed, and God is now taking history, taking his kingdom in a fundamentally different direction. Christ has won the victory. Satan is defeated, and the powers have been disarmed. 
They've been triumphed over, made a public spectacle of, Paul says, on the cross. And one day, when Christ returns, they will be finally eradicated. They still operate in the world. They still have a consuming power. But one day when Christ returns, those powers and authorities of evil and sin will be completely done away with. We'll live in a world that's characterized by the shalom of God. Human community with one another, human community with God, with God will be as it was intended to be in the beginning. The powers will be completely destroyed. So we find ourselves in this interesting space. We live on the other side of the Easter events. We live still this side of Jesus' return. And we live in this tension. We think about Satan and the powers now. On one hand, the reality is that Satan is defeated. And that's an important reality to live by. A lot of the time, we talk about Satan as if he's got equal authority, equal power to God. There's this battle going on as if the outcome's uncertain. As if, well, it could go Satan's way, it could go God's way. We don't really know. We've got to remember, guys, Satan is a defeated enemy. He has been triumphed over by the cross. He has been cast down. His reign has ended. Yes, he's going to try and fight guerrilla warfare and take as many people down as he can. He will try and raise up an insurgence against the authority of God. But his days are numbered and he has suffered a fatal wound. Satan is defeated. We've got to remember that. And the powers and authorities have been defeated. So our role and the invitation that comes to us from the cross of Christ is now to participate with Jesus in implementing the victory that he won on the cross. To participate in God's implementation of the great cosmic victory that Christ won over all powers and authorities of evil and over Satan, the enemy of God. And it's not so much fighting a battle as it is implementing a victory and outworking the victory of the cross and proclaiming to the powers, wherever we see them now, that their day is over. They do not have the final word. And a new kingdom is moving forward, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of new creation. And we participate in Jesus rolling that kingdom forward and pushing back the powers of darkness wherever we can. Starts in our own lives, doesn't it? Starts as we look at where the powers have got a hold on us. Where's the power of sin at work in our lives? Is there an area of our character? Is there an area of selfishness that God is just putting his finger on and saying the powers of darkness are still there? They're still operative. You don't even see it. You need to be aware of this. This is where the evil one has still got a hold on you. This is where the powers are still working at your life. It takes us having enough self-awareness or drawing others around us that we can see it and begin dealing with it, begin confronting the powers in Jesus' name. And it expands... As we look around us and we ask ourselves, where are the powers at work? Where are these powers that Paul talks about in Colossians 2 at work in our communities, in our workplaces, in our world? And how can we participate with Jesus in confronting the powers and proclaiming to the powers that Jesus has won the victory? In the late 1800s in Britain, there was a group of Christians that began meeting in a little town called Clapham in South London. They became known as the Clapham sect. Many of you will have heard of them uh, through the name William Wilberforce, who was part of the Clapham sect. And these were ordinary Christians, uh, some business people, some church ministers, some politicians, and they gathered together because they had a particular concern that the church in Britain be reinvigorated and reawakened. 
and a concern that the church become an agent of transformation, both of people's personal salvation and of the social problems that were plaguing Britain at the time. Wilberforce was part of that group, and he went on, of course, to become the great campaigner for abolition, so instrumental in abolishing the British slave trade. And that came out of the ethos, this Christian ethos of the Clapham sect, to confront the powers of sin wherever sin is found, in my heart, but also in the world around me. And the Clapham sect focused not only on the abolition issue, they focused on all kinds of social issues in their day in Britain, and they kept expanding their focus broader and broader and broader, and they eventually began focusing even on how indigenous people in the British colonies were treated, and a concern that British settlers were going in and oppressing and mistreating some of the native people. So Wilberforce had a word to his friend William Pitt, who was the Prime Minister of Britain, and he said, you know what we need to do is we need to appoint chaplains in the colonies and have a little missionary settlement there and have some chaplains go in so that they proclaim the gospel and they are instruments of salvation, but also so that they are a genuine force for social transformation and they protect and uphold as best they can the rights and, and the, uh, the privileges of the indigenous people who are there. And Pitt agreed to this. So Wilberforce himself then went and recruited the first two chaplains for the colony in Sydney, which was a convict colony, still is. But uh, he, went, he went and tapped on the shoulder two people to be chaplain and assistant chaplain in Sydney. And one of them was Samuel Marsden. Marsden went to Sydney, became the assistant chaplain there, and then he became the first missionary to New Zealand. First person to preach the gospel in New Zealand, Bay of Islands, 1814, Christmas Day, 1814. We're going to celebrate the centennial of that next year. And Marsden came himself out of that same ethos, the Clapham sect ethos, this holistic concern for the well-being of people. And I don't know whether he would have articulated it in the way we've been talking about this morning, but a desire to confront the powers wherever they are found, at a personal, spiritual level, but also at a social level. And he was passionate about evangelizing the Maori people, but also about protecting them from injustice against British settlers. And he would keep an eye on British ship crews that were coming in and ensure the fair treatment of Maori by the British. And when those rights were abused, he would report it. Now, the missionaries, they didn't get everything right. I'm not saying they were always perfect. They made mistakes. But this was their concern. And this is the early mission history of New Zealand. This is our legacy. This is what has been bequeathed to us. And we now take this forward as gospel people, charged with that same mission of confronting the power of sin and the power of darkness, both in our own lives and in the individual lives of people around us, and in our culture and society at large, wherever we see the powers at work. This is what Marsden and Wilberforce were doing in their own context and in their own day, and we simply need to translate that into our communities and neighborhoods today and say, where do we see the powers at work? Where is their injustice? Where are people subjugated? Where is their mistreatment? Where is their marginalization? Who are the least of these? And what can we do to bring the light of the knowledge of the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel into the darkness of those situations? That's what it means to proclaim, to outwork the victory of the cross. So the question becomes, where are the powers at work around you and within you? Where do you see the powers of sin at work? Is it happening in your organization? And what can you do in the power of the Spirit to address it? Maybe it's simply a case of seeking to be an agent of humanizing your workplace 
If there is a toxic culture, organizational culture, it's so intangible, isn't it? So hard to quantify corporate organizational culture, but perhaps for you it is simply seeking to rehumanize your workplace. Treat other people as genuine human beings. Take an interest in their lives. Seek to perhaps raise up some at the lower levels just by speaking of dignity, giving them dignity, treating them as human beings made in the image of God, having a conversation, taking an interest, treating them as more than commodities. Perhaps for you that is confronting the powers and that is implementing the victory of Jesus in your workplace. Maybe it's looking in your community. There's a Facebook group that Anna belongs to called Make a Difference in Birkdale Beach Haven. And we saw this last week that there's a family that posted um, on that, on that uh, Facebook page. There's a girl in Beach Haven, I think in fact a sister and brother, who have not been able to get to school this year yet because they don't have school uniforms because they cannot afford the price of the school uniform, so they've just been at home for weeks and weeks. And this Facebook group is seeking to raise enough money to purchase the school uniforms for these kids so they can get back to school. I would say that's an example of seeking to confront the powers, the power of poverty that presses these kids down and deprives them of opportunities. And it's seeking quite simply in everyday ways, just through generosity, through seeking to be Jesus in our communities, raising people up, helping people out. I know there's all kinds of questions and qualifications you could give, but isn't it just responding to the needs that we see around us and confronting the powers of sin wherever they are found? So just ask yourself, where do you see the powers at work? In your heart, in your life, in your character, in your relationships, and around you, in your workplace, on your street, in your community. So from this perspective of the battlefield, what is the cross? It's a massive victory. It's a cosmic victory that Jesus has won over Satan, absorbing the full brunt of Satan's attack, transforming it into the ultimate moment of love and new creation and salvation for all. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to those of us who know Jesus to become agents of transformation and to become part of implementing the victory of Jesus in our world as we look at where the powers have got a hold and proclaim to them that their day is up and there's a new Lord and a new kingdom proclaiming his victory. So may we implement the victory of Jesus, the victory that he has won on the cross in our lives and in our world because of the great triumph of Christ over Satan, over the powers on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for this cosmic victory that he's won. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to absorb the full assault of the evil one. And that you've consumed everything that was thrown at you. And you've absorbed it and you've extinguished it. And now in its place there is this free-flowing river of your gracious love and mercy that comes to us from the cross. And thank you, Jesus, that this is done so that we can participate actively in working that victory out. So bring to our minds and our hearts the situations. Lord, I'm conscious we're talking in, in big terms, cosmic terms, it's big scale stuff, but focus our hearts right down onto the names and the faces and situations that are in our lives where we can respond to this where we can be part of your victory and part of proclaiming to the powers the victory of Jesus Christ. Lord, show us where we can act and where we can be your ambassadors. And we thank you that that victory was won for us and for all who would bow the knee 
and confess you as Lord. Thank you for your victory, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.